Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Against the Grain podcast, where we discuss woodworking and the business of woodworking. This is episode number 13. My name is Justin Napama, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Freddie Roman. Hello. And Guy Dunlap. How are you? How is everybody doing this week? Good. Wonderful. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're doing a morning episode, so everybody should hear our voices are bright and chipper. (laughs) Guy, what's going on in the shop? Um, uh, I've, I've been working on my buffet still. I had a lot of veneering to do. Um, I decided to veneer just about everything that I could have used plywood for just cause I don't like the look of regular plywood, especially when you get down at the quarter inch plywood, which is going to be for the back cause mm. it's, it's, it's a circular cut and it just looks like hell. Mm. So, um, that takes a lot of time to do, you know, doing a couple panels and you know, I'm not that fast at it. It, t- it takes me a long time to do. And I've got a couple things too, that is, as far as the design go, it's, it's great to have a neat design and all that, but actually executing it takes uh, a little bit of thinking. So I spent probably the last two days just ironing out some details and actually building, you know, um, samples in the shop like i'm going to do it this way and then trying to get it to work right so it i can be efficient at it when i actually do build the piece because i don't want to ruin the the, uh, the the stock for the end piece so that's pretty much it nice good the veneer looks pretty good i like the wood choice you chose thank you actually a lot of that was the the uh, pattern for the front that was freddie helped me do that yeah, it looks beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Freddie, what are you up to? Uh, this week, I am finalizing like the clients who want their items back before Christmas, even though they dropped it off last week. So I'm trying to you know, fix the last batch of chairs. I got a dining table, this huge dining table that I'm modifying, cutting down in width and then cutting down in length and you know stripping it and finishing it and somehow delivering it on friday excuse me so that's my main focus this week and then after that it's the holiday season it's christmas good oh you yeah for uh for me this past week uh i hate to tell you guys this again but i finished up another load of foam (laughs) and received another phone call asking if i'd like to do a whole nother 40,000 pieces and I told him yes. So I'll try and limit telling you guys that I'm doing more foam. But besides that, uh, I worked on those doors. They are 90% of the way done. I have a little bit to do. I just have to find some time. Um, Yesterday I had a friend come over and we built a writing desk real quick with dominoes and plywood for his wife for Christmas. Uh, nice little project. First, uh, hairpin legs I've ever done. So, yeah, you can add me to that list of people that have done them now. So, uh, what else is going on? Just, yeah, just dealing with foam, looking into renting a space so I can, the foam just takes up way too much room in my shop when I 
I'm done with it or dealing with it in the beginning. It's just, I can't work on anything else. So I'm looking at running a, a small space. Hopefully I can use and just set up and use that, do that there. And then come home and the second half of the day and work in the actual shop and get some work done. So trying to figure all that out. Oh, and then the other thing was, uh, for my big bandsaw, mm-hmm. I trying to figure out how I'm going to run this thing being that it's three phase and I'm going to do a, uh, rotary phase converter. So nice. yeah, I spoke to my cousin. He had a motor for me. He dropped it off yesterday. So I got a 15 horsepower motor. It's going to be my little pony motor. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, hey, got it for free. So you can be. Able I just got to buy the. I'll. What's that, Fred? I was gonna say you'd be able to run multiple three phase machines off of that. Yeah, yeah, I think that can run up to seven and a half horsepower from everything I read. Wow. So, I only have two three phase machines, and neither one of them will run at the same time. So it'll never be an issue for me. Yeah. I just got to buy buy the electronics from American Rotary, and then I could run that. Yeah. That's great. But that's a big motor, 15 horsepower. Yeah. yeah. So learning all that stuff as well. Mm. That's about it. That thing probably needs its own room. <laughs> it it needs its own little hoist, that's for sure. <laughs> it took two of us just to lift it and put it on a handcart. Yeah. So this week we figured we would do a whatever show. We have some questions that we ask some people and then we'll just figure we shoot the poop, talk about whatever. (laughs) (laughs) PG version, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We want to get started with these questions? Yeah. Sure. Guy. Guy, ask away. Well, the first one I'm going to read is from uh, Nicholas Venaria. I think this is really directed towards Freddie because I think he's going to have the most experience doing something like this. Maybe, I don't know. But it says, I'm building a corner cupboard using flame birch. I'll be standing using a method by Glenn Huey where it calls for an initial die coat to enhance the figure, then a glaze coat, then final finish. He says, I'm not too familiar with the glaze coat part, so any suggestions on the best thing to use for that and exactly what a glaze coat will do for the finish is appreciated. Mm-hmm. Ready? I guess that's where I come in. Yep. So, <clears throat> usually a glaze coat is used for uniformity when you have pieces like birch or cherry or pine. They usually have areas called blotching. And usually blotching means that these areas suck up more stain quicker or much more than the surrounding area. And then some people say, oh, it's a figure in the wood. Well, in actuality, it's not. Really what it is, is like I, like I mentioned prior. So usually when you dye something, <clears throat> excuse me, or if you stain something, there's still these, this issue of areas a little darker, a little lighter than the surrounding, you know, overall piece. So usually a gel stain, or which is what most commonly is used today for glazing, it gets put put on, and a gel stain is really thick. It's like buttery consistency. It doesn't really um, fall off if it's leaning. A piece is leaning against the wall. You have time to work it. You can go ahead and use a rag. You can go ahead and use a brush. Some people use foam brushes first. Let it sit and wipe it down. Uh, it's very helpful in say species like oak, and because once you stain oak, 
the non-porous material usually gets beautifully stained and colored. But then you have all these pores that really look very open and doesn't really look as pleasing to the eye. But by you applying a glaze coat, it helps fill those cavities and gives you more of a consistent, uniform look. So the advantage of glazing is for uniformity, but also... If you're using a dye, usually the dyes are water or alcohol. Rarely is it used for oil. And you want the oil that's in, in, in a glaze or a gel stain to give it somewhat of a different hue. It kind of looks more attractive when it has that oil look to a piece. and also gives it added depth. So you have multiple advantages of using glazes. Now you can go ahead and make your own glazes, but really today off the shelf from general finishes, you can go ahead and buy any one of their gel stains. You can intermix them, make your own colors. They work really well, really friendly. How I like to do it is I like to apply it with a cheap China bristle brush and then wipe it down with a rag. If you're not comfortable with a rag and can't get consistent results, then I have a dedicated glazing brush, which is this very wide brush, like four or five inches wide. And you can feather in the glaze to give it more control. Or if you want to get into areas that you want it to be really deep or grungy, if you want to replicate a vintage look, that really helps in establishing that look. <clears throat> can I add something here? Of course. So... Do you know Glenn Huey's uh, approach to finishing, how he does this? No, Freddie? I do not. Okay, I do. Okay. And I know exactly what this guy is talking about. Um, I do my dye stain the exact same way Glenn Huey does it because I probably learned from him. I know I learned from him. And so what he does, he does a dye stain. I know exactly the piece this guy's talking about, the flame birch chest of drawers and all that. So what... What he'll do is he'll dye stain it. He floods the surface with dye stain to get it to be even, which is how I do it. It's just, I feel like that's the easiest way to dye stain mm -hmm. is flooding the surface, mm -hmm. letting it sit for a couple of minutes and then wiping off your excess. And then from there, you will do a seal coat between the two. Mm -hmm. You have to put a seal coat. So if it's shellac or something differently, but you need a seal coat, lightly sand it, get your dust off. And then from there, you'll add the glazing coat, like Freddie's speaking about. And the way G Guy, uh, I'm sorry, Glenn Huey is doing it is he's using it to antique the piece. So like Freddie says, nowadays, you're using a glaze coat to even tones out and just make it look more consistent throughout the whole piece because a lot of furniture isn't anymore. So they use it that way. The way Glenn Huey is using it is to... AJ piece. So he wants it to stay in the corners. He wants yeah. it to create effect. It just, it looks older. It gives it that worn look in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what, this is where, uh, Glenn's and, and Freddie's approach are very similar in the sense that you're putting it on with a brush. You can use either like Freddie said, a gel stain, or you can go get an actual, uh, glaze stains or, or coatings from a commercial place, which they then dry an actual glaze coating will dry as a dust, more or less. Mm -hmm. And even after it dries, you can wipe it off. You have to then coat over top of that with another seal coat. And then you can do all your top coat processes there. Mm -hmm. So the the gel stain is a lot nicer, I think, to work with uh, while you're working it. The actual glaze stains are nice to work with afterwards. So they'll dry, it becomes a dust, and it's you can still start removing it. 
but I, the, I think Freddie's right. Get the gel stain. It's the easiest approach and it looks the best. And then just like he said, take a big brush and then you're just going to use that brush and you're going to just sweep across it with big strokes. Not necessarily like just working a brush like you're painting. It's more like big strokes. You're trying to brush it out of there, right, Fred? Yes. Yeah. And then keep a a towel on the other hand so you can just wipe that brush off if you need to, if it's building up too much material on that brush. Mm -hmm. And you're just trying to spread the surface and make it evenly spread out or create age spots in the corner, which will represent dust in a way from multiple years um flame birch is it's a tougher one to work with i'll say that yeah it's really tough but you know yeah. you yeah. want to get the glaze in there because believe it or not birch is very porous yes yeah um we could almost piggyback this conversation off of another question we had guy which was the pore filling one mm-hmm. yeah yeah i thought that was a good question and um that comes from Chesapeake Repair. It says, I come from mostly guitar building background. When finishing guitars, you use a pour filler prior to finishing. I don't see furniture makers using pour filler very often. When do you guys use it or not use it? And when does it come into play during repairing furniture? Good question. So, yeah, yeah I, I've only used pour filler a couple times. And I've used the... Uh, the Balins, which is oil-based. And I've also used a, a water-based product before. Um, I had better success with the, the Balins, but it's a real pain to use. Very uh, labor-intensive to use. I don't know. Do, do you use a lot of a pore filler on stuff, Freddie? I do. I do use a lot of pore filler. Now, I still have some old stock from where Balins used to be not Balins. Was it Balins? I forgot. There was a company out there that um, that existed that they had an amazing pore filler. It was Bartley gel, Bartley finishes, and their consistency of pore filler and gel stains were the best. Because the issue with pore filling sometimes is that it dries so quickly, so you mm-hmm. got to work certain areas carefully and making sure that you can work that area before it starts really drying or flashing off and the water base depending on the atmosphere in your shop and how hot or humid it is can be even worse which is very frustrating which is why people have a tendency of using glazing stains these days but Mm -hmm. you know they they used to come in only in three shades used to be dark medium and light and uh, now there's uh, balins offers or mohawk offers a variety of different shades, which is to your advantage. But even then, it's sometimes easier just to make your own by buying the natural and just adding earth pigment or some staining into it and then mixing it all up. But how I use it is mainly on new construction. The reason being because a lot of the uh, antique furniture, the density of the wood, say from like Aden mahogany or Cuban mahogany or or the density of old walnut, the por- the pores are really small. And... By polishing it with top coats or shellac or varnish, it's amazing how quickly these pores get filled. So I believe not many antiques have a lot of pore filling. Um, but today I use it mainly when I have to do French polishing because the mahogany today is much sharper. And it takes us so much more effort to go ahead and fill the pores than what it used to be in the old days. And... It just takes so much more work, I believe, compared to the glaze that I don't really use it that often anymore. Mm-hmm. That's why. 
Me personally, I've done it a couple of times. Uh, I did try a, I think it was an oil-based product once. And I think the stuff was just no good because it didn't work. Uh, I bought it from a local <laughs> local hardware store and who knows how old it was. But uh, I have used Timbermate, which is actually a wood putty. Mm-hmm. And you can use that as a filler as well. You just thin it with water. And it, it works. I've had very good luck with it. Um, and that's it sands nice. So you put that stuff on heavy and then just sand it back off and it stays in the grain. And then same thing. You There's probably 10 or 12 different colors of that stuff. So you can get pretty close or you can do just like Freddie said, where you mix some stain into it to color it because it takes stain very well. And I've had very good luck with that stuff. It, it, it adds a lot of time to your project, like Fred's saying. It's just, it, it is time consuming to do and trying to get your consistencies right with adding the right amount of water and whatnot. But yeah, it, it, and just like Freddie said, I don't do much poor filling because it is easier for me to spray coats of lacquer on for the things that I do and then sand it off than it is to actually do poor filling mm-hmm. and deal with it, what it's going to do with my color, uh, changing the wood tone, coloring and all that. So, Yeah, I've, like I said, I've done it a couple times. I've, the last time I did it, I used a, a product called Crystalac. Mm. which is a, which is a water-based and I, and I screwed up when I did it too. It was a, a kitchen table and it was walnut and I, I should have uh, put something on the walnut first because when I put the water-based pour filler on and, and, you know, spread it out and sanded it back and everything, even though I put, ended up putting an oil finish on the uh, top, it still looked like a water-based finish and uh, you know, water-based finish on walnut is, is almost a sin. It doesn't look very good unless, unless you have something down underneath at first. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried getting the, the, the water-based um, or the, 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 you know, sanding back certain parts of it, but it was just too deep into the pores where it just, it just wouldn't take the, the oil very well. So that was my last time doing it. Before I, before I did that, I used uh, the pour pack a couple times, which is an oil-based. And that's just a really messy and, like I said, labor-intensive process. And uh, it worked well, but it was a real pain to use. You have to you know, rub it in with – they suggest using burlap, yes, which, mm-hmm. which I didn't have. So I was just using rags and stuff, and I'm, I'm trying to burnish it in. It just – it was a mess. It was a mess. I I will say that like like Justin said, the timber mate it comes in really handy, especially when you have like small projects and you don't want to open up cans of chemical. This the timber mate dries so fast and it's so easy to work. I really do use that more often, and I'm glad that Justin mentioned that. Yeah, and don't be hesitant to add water to it if it's flashing off on you too fast. Add a little more water. Um, it, it's going to raise your grain. But in the same sense, you're going to be sanding it back off in the end, so it doesn't matter. Now, do you put any finish on the piece first and then the the pour filler, or did you do it as no, a process? No, because uh, I didn't because Timbermate takes stain really well, mm-hmm. and it, it'll basically take whatever you want to color your wood. So if you're going to color the wood, yes, definitely just put it on but the raw wood. But if you're not? I do sometimes. I do dye first. And okay. Seal what you like, and then I do the timber mate. 
Okay. Yeah, that's what I was it, referring to. It was like a sealer coat of shellac or something. I, that's going to be iffy, isn't it? If you got the color wrong. Yes. Right, Freddie? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the downfall of it, if you ask me. I don't know if I would do it, but Freddie has more, way more experience at it than me. Well, I, I know for me, I would just put the stuff in and stain everything. And that's the only way I'm probably going to do a wood filler. Otherwise, it would just be either filling with shellac or lacquer, mm. personally. You know, like anything else, you always want to do a finish schedule. You want to basically have a good sample, 12 by 12 or something close to that size. And you go through the exact same procedure so you know that what the result's going to be. And if you're happy with, say, a dye color or a stain color, I always say put shellac on it. And the reason being is that shellac sticks to everything and everything sticks to shellac. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. And then what this allows for you is for you to see – um, a certain stage of the process, you're very happy with that process. You feel somewhat relieved, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, about the procedure that you have so far. And that basically gives you a little bit of, of protection by putting on a shellac finish. And you can keep, keep doing that. Like every layer that you're happy with, just seal it. And in case you, something goes wrong or something you don't like or you rather i wish i can take this glaze off or i wish i didn't pour fill it as much you can use the solvent that's in the glaze or the pour filler to remove it from the previously sealed layer because now we're using different solvents and now you have more yes. control and that's kind of like my lifesaver say because to say if i don't like something then there's always a way back yes true and back to the glazing question we had mm -hmm. Uh, first off, great point. You should definitely do a sample piece. Like Freddie's saying, figure out your process before you actually do it on the piece, because then you're just fighting a nightmare. The, the other thing is Freddie brought up a very good point is if you put the glaze on and you don't like how it's coming out in the end, you can always go back with, if you're using a oil-based product, just get mineral spirits and you can pull most of it back off. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to play around with it. Awesome. That was a great question. Yeah, it is. Uh, next one we're going to tackle. This is from Joey from King Post Timberworks. <clears throat> and he asked, you know, how far do you go to please your client, your client before you have to say no, like making constant changes or asking for delivery at midnight on Sunday, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've I, all had well, like that. Yeah. Well, he, as far as, uh, making the client happy before I say no. I think for the actual piece of furniture, I think my standards are higher than most of clients. Mm -hmm. So they they rarely have an issue with that. Uh, I've, I've come to learn that- What about like a design change? You know, you're halfway through it and they say, right. well, we, we want you to do this instead. It's like, okay. And mm -hmm. then you do it and then they ask again to change what they just asked you to change. Well, there's, there's two steps I've, I've learned over my career. One is I've had that happen. I still get that happen occasionally. You have to talk to the client and tell them, this is what we can do from this point forward or we can't, right? And, I, and I'm clear about it. It's like, yes, we can do that or no, we can't change that. Or you have to then let them know if it's a drastic change. It's like, hey, this is going to cost you an additional amount more because I have to back this up and everything and you just – talk. That's, that's the main thing. The other thing is, uh, I definitely try and iron out my contracts 
with a client before we start a project. So there's either samples going to them or all the details are figured out. And then from there, hopefully nothing gets changed. Mm-hmm. And that's just, I've learned that the hard way. Communication is is probably the most important thing you touched on there. Knowing, mm-hmm. trying to get into the client's head, which is difficult sometimes. And sometimes it's a dark and scary place you don't want to go into. But mm-hmm. trying to get into their head and figure out exactly what they want so you can do it right the first time uh, is important. You know, the couple times I've had people ask me to change stuff, it, it wasn't anything major and it was pretty easy. Uh, I did have a customer once that I was, you know, 90% finished with the project and I showed them a, a, a progress shot of the, of the, of the piece. And they said, well, we want you to change this, 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 this. I'm like, well, you're basically asking me to build a new piece. Mm-hmm. And if I do that, it's going to be X amount of dollars. I think if it's, if it starts really costing a lot more than, you know, an hour, an hour and a half worth of time. You almost have to ask for a change order and, and ask for more money. If a customer does ask you to change something and you realize it's going to be labor intensive or a drastic change on the project, explain that to the customer. Like, look, this is the process I have to go through to make this happen for you. Mm-hmm. And they'll either understand that they don't want it changed, they want to pay for that, or they'll say, okay, we really want this to change and they'll accept it. As long as long as you communicate, like Guy said, that's, that's the major thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with me, I believe that everything should go on a contract. Like I want, Mm -hmm. I want it spelled out. Like, like you wouldn't believe even with my slips for people who come in for restoration, it's like, I write down exactly what they're telling me. And I tell them at the end of it, it says what's on the slip. It's what's going to get done. I've had that too. And And people, people question things. And I'm like, look, your contract says this right here and you signed Mm -hmm. it. And then they're like, okay. You know, and it's like, I give them a finished sample. I have them approve it. I have them sign it. I take the finished sample back so they can't lose it. Or, you know, uh, I have a good reference to it. And sometimes if I'm very confident in my finishing skills, I'll take that sample and I'll rip it in half. And I say, sign both of these. You have a physical copy. I have a physical copy. We're on the same page. The instructions and procedures are on the back of it. You know, that's that. And then, I'm reaching that issue with a client right now that they won't, they requested a certain look. And now I'm, I've adjusted once, I've adjusted twice, and now they want it to look totally different than what we agreed upon. So now I basically said, well, I have no time for you right now. I say it nicely. It's just kind of one of those things that I, it's the Christmas season. This is supposed to be done a while ago, and now you're changing your mind. Unfortunately, I have to put it on the back burner until after the holidays. And then now when the client's coming in or, or the designer's coming in, I have to tell them nicely that, listen, this is not the scope of the job. And yeah, I, this is not part of the business procedure that I was planning to do on this. I don't even want this item in the shop any, anymore because there's other things coming going. My schedule is very tight. If you want me to proceed, it has to cost you more money. I had a customer I spent a year and a half with going over details. And she just kept changing things and changing things. And in the end, she ended up basically going to the original sample I gave her. Nice. And I, I, at, after a year and a half of explaining it to her and getting to know her, I was able to tell her, this is where we originally were. And we went through this whole process. Luckily, she didn't care. And well, I was able to charge her for everything. Right. But it was, and it was above and beyond I was going. And it was okay because 
we talk through everything, right? And it's she's she's a very good customer of mine, and I've done a couple things for, her, and now I just go there and I do things, and I know that two things have happened. One is I know that I'm going there and it's going to be a process for whenever I do anything with her. Cause she's, she has her mindset on what she wants. She has a very hard time on getting that out of her mind to explain it. And the other thing is that she now trusts my judgment. When I tell her something, she takes it and respects what I tell her. It's not just, okay, what do you know? You don't know what I want type thing. So it, it's, you got to communicate. And then like Freddie said, don't be afraid to communicate that you are beyond where we should be for a normal job. Is that, that came out sounding weird, but you know what I mean? Yeah. For the job that you contracted. Yes. Yeah. 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 And you can only go, you can only go so far before it becomes above and beyond really. Now, yeah. you know, for the whole midnight delivery, if it's, this is, if this is not for like a TV show, I mean, if you're not making a lot of money, the whole midnight thing is not happening. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I personally, I will not answer my phone on a Sunday. Yeah, no. Do not do not expect to be answered back on Sunday or even late Saturday night. I just that's not right. And it's e- emails are one thing, phone calls that's just disrespectful. I feel like yeah, I'm personally, you know the 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 issue we have today is everyone assumes that you're connected to your hip or mm-hmm. you're connected to your phone. I'm sorry, and it's just one of those times that listen, I, I'm up. The minute the sun comes up and at night, especially during the holiday season, I and I want no more work. I don't want to think about it. There's enough paperwork I have to go ahead and handle. It's already the end of the year. It's like tax season is right around the corner. I have enough stuff on my plate. The last thing I need is for a client to be like, when is it coming? Can you deliver it later on this evening? Because really deep down, the response would be like, heck no, I have a life. You have a yeah. life. Leave me alone. Yeah, unfortunately, some customers think that you they are your only customer. Yes. Mm-hmm. Your whole world revolves around them. Have, have you ever had a customer that, you know, you're in the negotiation stages and you start working with them a little bit and then you realize that this customer is is going to be a nightmare for you and you just say, I'm not going to do it? <laughs> I've done that. I've turned away. I've done that a couple of times based on that because I've, you know, just talking to people, it's like, you know what, these these. these these people are going to be my nightmare customer. I just don't want to deal with it. So I, I live in a fairly small town in the sense that everybody knows everybody around here, right? Um, if I come across a customer that's looking for a major project and I don't know who they are, I will start asking around about them just to make sure that they're going to pay and do everything else because it, it's just this. it just seems weird. It's like, I, I don't know. I, I was just asked to do this big uh, bar for this, this local bar here. I didn't know the person, right? But he had, he'd heard of me. He had supposedly contacted me years ago to do something else. And I told him I was too busy, but he, I gave him a price for something that was fairly substantial. Right. And it was just, this is a lot of money. Do I know if you're good for it? And I asked around and the word came back. Yes, he he's good for it. So it's, it's, covering my butt in a way to, mm-hmm. to find out if they're going to be good or bad, or if I'm going to have to chase money or all part of the deal, I guess. But yeah. I do exactly the same thing when it comes to asking people about yeah. the certain client that's coming. I have one currently that, um, you know, it's a potential 11 to $15,000 job to make these couches. And the way his, 
verb verbiage is in emails or in the way he's he's talking has me with uh, uh, hesitation of how demanding he's going to be. Mm-hmm. And how demanding he wants to be. He wants to visit my shop and he wants to take up exactly one hour of my time and he wants to come today. Is it okay? And I'm just kind of saying like, you know, we can discuss, but I can't just dedicate an hour of your time. I said money talks. I say nicely. It's like, you know, if we are going to agree on the, on things and we're going to get the paperwork set up and then it's official, you agree on my price, then I'm more than happy to take the time. After that, you can just communicate with me with via email. If you want to step by, I'm willing to talk to you 15, 20 minutes max. That's it. Like I can't do it anymore because if you have 12 people coming in, taking 15 minutes of my day, I'm never going to get anything done. Yeah, and that's, right. I try to tell them that. And it's just like, you know, if you go to see your doctor for 15 minutes, there's a copay and there's a bill. There's no copay or bill with me, but basically that means out of respect, you give me my time, you get in and out. I got to keep moving. Yeah. And I just happened to get an email yep. from him right now as we're talking. Nice. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next question, please. All right. I'll go to this one. It's kind of an interesting question. I don't have a lot of experience with it, but uh, I think you guys have had some. It's from MRL Woodworks. It says, could you expand on shipping pieces, building crates, specific dimensions that here the carriers prefer or just build to the size rectangle square you need, you know, working with UPS or other carriers or just bring it to a UPS store, you know, other options, you know, Greyhound bus, for instance. Uh, so I don't have a whole lot of experience shipping stuff. Uh, I have a lot of experience shipping things in another business in, in, in the real world of a, uh, the, the corporate world I used to work in, I did a lot of, a lot of freight stuff, but as far as furniture goes, nothing. I've never shipped anything. Hmm. Uh, so here's my experience shipping. I built a, uh, display unit that went out to Vegas several times for a local meatball company. And meatball company. <laughs> Yeah. Hey. Yeah. They make meatballs. Um, (laughs) You want to get tired of the smell of meatballs? Go to this place. (laughs) Walk out of there. uh, Horrible smell. (laughs) But anyways. um, So yeah. So I built them a display unit that gets shipped out to Vegas once a year, and I believe it goes to Chicago or somewhere for another display show. But anyways. So the first set of crates I built went out, came back, and were absolutely destroyed. I fixed them. They went out and got destroyed again. And I think they hired a company to actually build them a new set of crates. And then they went out and took a couple beatings, came back, and they needed a new crate for a new piece that they had me build. And I more or less learned from that how to build a crate off of their design because I had no idea. Uh and their way of building the crate, which I will now do, is before I was building a frame and then plywood in the outside, they did it the opposite way. They built a plywood box and then just made all two by fours on the outside and everything attached to it just made it indestructible that way. That's my experience. The whole pack everything as tight as you can get it with all the packing you can get it because you want it to be able to fall off the truck and still survive. Uh, you do not want to find out your piece got damaged. No. Mm-hmm overthink everything in my mind as far as sizing and best pricing i have no idea 
I'm not shipping small things or I don't know if it does matter once you start getting the certain size and it gets on the freight truck, what'll sell better or it'd be cheaper to ship. I mean, my, my experience with, uh, common carriers or freight companies is that everything is, it's not priced by weight. It's priced by cube. And yes. Cube is how much, how, how much room it takes up in the truck. Yes. So the, the, the smaller you can build the crate, the better. Mm-hmm. That would be the only thing I could really add to this conversation. And a, and a good point is keeping it cube shape. Do not build it the shape of your chair that you're going to ship, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, build a cube and pack the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. a, what do you what do you what use you for packing? This? Foam, rigid foam. Usually, I'll go to Home Depot and just buy some rigid yeah, foam. Yeah, and, foam insulation. Yeah, yeah. And if I have something else in there, or soft stuff. I mean, if you need to to bubble wrap it first and then do the everything else around it. I was I was hot gluing the foam to the actual crate so nothing would move and mm-hmm. yeah it's just keep everything as packed in as tight as I could get it. I know some some right. freight companies especially like um, FedEx freight if you have something that you know not like a, a big table or something but let's say a chair um, or you know like a, a small nightstand or something you can take it there and they actually have pretty decent size crates that you can purchase. Yes. And the crates are actually um, uh, a double wall corrugated cardboard that, that it's waxed cardboard. So it's very tough and it's got uh, stiffeners on the, the corners of it and they'll put it in there and they'll just fill it full of peanuts and put a top on it. And you can go that route too, but it's, it's fairly expensive. You can also also get crates from Uline. They have a variety that they make like pre-made and you can get like a 48 by 40 by 42 crate for like $215. Yeah. You know, you figure out how much time it's going to take for you to go Home Depot or whatever and make the crate. Sometimes it's just be like, click, buy, see ya. I'm getting the filler in between. But when I make crates, I usually have, you know, like really thick plywood. And mm-hmm. I line the inside with like one by uh, strapping material. And I just imagine uh, the forklift knives going through the case. So I want yep. like every grid work with hot glue screws, like everywhere, brad nail, making sure like if they're going to hit the box, they're going to be some major resistance. And then behind that, there's a piece of foam or sound barrier, like homosoil. Soot- and then I, if it's a chair, then the chair is strapped down to the base and it's, it doesn't, can't tilt back and can't, even if the thing gets flipped upside down and dropped six floors, it's still going to be strapped, hopefully to the case. And believe it or not, this sounds retarded, but I literally go to the loading dock and like push my crate to the floor and see how bad it gets damaged to make sure that the areas that broke get reinforced or, you know, I just be aware of areas that can possibly get damaged, which is why I, I overpack everything. But of course, the client gets charged for all this. I'm not doing this yeah. like for free. You brought up two good points there. One is the idea of buying the crate mm-hmm. some way because it is very time consuming to build a crate, it, let alone the wood alone you have to buy. There's a ton of wood that goes into it, plywood and stuff like that. And then the. Uh, Man, you'll spend you'll spend a day just trying to build a crate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's it's amazing 
once you pack your thing in there, it's, it's very time consuming. And, and the other thing, I've seen it several times where, just like Freddie said, they stuck the forks of the forklift through the crate, through a plywood. So depending on the weight of the crate, I mean, if you're shipping a chair, most likely that cradle is just going to move before the forks go through it. But where I've shipped these display units, they're they're several hundred pounds. So therefore, they just hit it with the forks on the forklift and it went through three quarter inch plywood. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 a lot of ramming speed coming at something, yes. right? The other thing is I've learned that it's better to put it on a, a pallet, mm-hmm. shipping pallet, than it is to basically build your own pallet. The The shipping ones just hold up really well. I agree, 100%. So, Give- and you can get those several places and i i give them options of like there's only two ways to access this box you can't come from the side you can't come from all four surfaces or you know edges it's just only on the two edges and i want to control where those two edges are being picked up from depending on the weight of the table or the item yeah the, uh, the the other thing i do is i obviously insure this and if it's only five thousand dollars for this i'm insuring it for ten thousand dollars because if something badly mm-hmm. happens having to deal with the client and the pressure that's added onto it, it's even more stressful. And I photograph everything when it comes to creating because I want to show them that it's their fault, not mine. This is exactly how the, the crate was built. I built it correctly. It's your stupidity that it, it got damaged. Good point. Yeah. All right. Always right on there, this side yes. up. <laughs> Fragile. Yeah, time. Fragile, <laughs> man. Fragile. Yeah. yeah fragile. All over. Um, <laughs> the, the other thing is interesting, I forgot to mention is that, you know, you, today you can use this is new thing happening, and I've already used it once called uh, Uber Freight. You can yes. rent these guys to go all over the United States. They're going to be going in Canada. They're going to be doing Australia. They're going to be going in the UK. And it's amazing how this is going to change shipping. Because these guys need, or these drivers need the reviews. They need to be good to get the job, to have better control and make more money. So more money for them means better service. Better service means that there's less stress for you. So in the end, I believe in the future that shipping material anywhere, it's going to be much easier. Yeah. Is that going to be like a white glove service where they you know, take it out of the crate for the customer and put it where they want it and all that? No, to my knowledge right now is just simply bringing it from A to B. Okay. So it, uh, I've seen this, Freddie. Is it these guys that are probably just doing it on their own? They have a truck that's not full and they're willing to fill the truck with something because they're going from point A to point yes, B? Yes, is that. Or some some guys actually have rigs that they own themselves that are like subcontractors to help fill areas that they need it. And they can go ahead mm-hmm. and just say, you know, we'll price – the job to take it from A to B at a certain time frame at a certain date, and um, you pay Uber and Uber pays them. And then nice. what's great about that is that Uber does their background check and making sure that these guys are actually somewhat reliable. And then everything's about reviews. Reviews are now becoming the biggest benefit for us. Right. The biggest benefit and crutch. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah they 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 say that uh. A pissed off customer is most likely to tell people about it than a happy customer. Mm-hmm. It's like ten to one, yeah. isn't it? It's like five Something. to one from the numbers. Numbers yeah. I remember it may have changed since then, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, that's definitely true. And I do it. If I'm mad. I tell I. I you know. <laughs> so. All right. Next, one. Next question. Uh, this is a good question. It's from. Godet Woodworking, and he's actually one of our patrons. So, um, 
Can you describe how you design a project for clients? Do you charge a design fee? Why don't you start us off, Justin? Do I charge a design fee? No. And I, I've said this before. Um, my, my process for getting the idea of what a customer wants is to have them go to the internet, find a bunch of pictures. I tell them of kind of the general idea of what they're looking for and just find details in those pictures they like. They can be totally different things, but just ideas of what these little uh, aspects of the project they would like in it. And then from there, we can get a general idea of where we're going. And I will do a simple hand sketch from there. It's we're then going to sit down and talk pricing and get a deposit before you actually get a really uh, knit down design. Mm-hmm. Knit down is the wrong word, but um, actual design we're working with. So that therefore there's there's money figured into it already in that mm-hmm. way. I'll be able to get some of my time out of it. I've, I already have a deposit. I'm not going to do uh, a full-on design anymore with a customer that just is still iffy. It's just a loss of a half a day between drawing it and doing this and that. It's just it's it's a loss mm-hmm. of a day. So I've learned that same thing the hard way. Yeah, um, I agree. What about you? I agree 100%. Like I, these days, um, I want to weed out as much doubt as possible. Like I quickly will say exactly what you said, gather pictures, give me rough dimensions. I tell them if I can do it, I give them a rough estimate of the ballpark and emphasize Mm -hmm. that I'm not 100% sure until I draw it up and really plan out the procedure and what's involved and the materials you choose and what's going to be the overall cost and the time frame that you desire. Because sometimes they say, I need this in four weeks. And it's kind of like, well, this is a six-week job. If you want it in four weeks, that's not a problem means I don't have to charge you more because you're rushing me even more now because you weren't planning properly. So there's a lot of factors involved. And um, I want all that on the contract. Like even when they want to move forward, I do charge for my design now. I used to not. And it's probably because I was more hungry back then. And I come to the realization that, you know, if these guys came to you, it's because they respect you and they respect your work. They're not just saying Joe Schmo local. So you're having yourself become more established or they've heard about you. So you have the capability of charging for your time and showing them that you are a professional and that my services cost money. Keep, keep in mind, everybody, that you can also charge for your time for the mm-hmm. drawing um, in your pricing and it doesn't have to show yes. up. Correct. So in my mind, to put on a invoice to somebody is design time. It just doesn't look mm-hmm. right. But technically, who's to say that my wood didn't cost two hundred dollars more? Right? They don't know that side of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can you can you can hide it that way as well. Just you should get paid for your time. Knowing how to charge for that time in different ways is is the trick, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. Yeah. So, and, and like Freddie said, if, if somebody comes at you and they want you to do something that's above and beyond, you need to communicate with them, say, Hey, this is my time. If you're willing to pay for that, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the other thing I do is sign and date everything yes. that way. Uh, I've gotten drawings from other people that I'm just like, 
I know that they didn't draw this. It's a CAD drawing or something. They were talking to somebody else and this came from somebody else. I mean, I feel bad that I stole somebody else's work, but hey, this way, at least it, I mean, I don't go as far as putting a watermark on it because I do all hand drawings, but there's always a date and date and signature on all my stuff. So, um, you know, the, the other thing that I do is, is I tell clients that there's a design fee, but if you hire me, that the design fee will go towards the piece. Now, yes. it's a selling right. point. In the end, you're still going to charge them, but it makes them feel good. Just let's be realistic. It's because there's just time involved, depending on how complex it is. There has been times that, oh, this is just a simple table. Yeah, I'll take the $150 that you would have paid me, and I would put it towards the project as long as you sign it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also the concern of you know, do who owns the property of the drawing. And usually, I say that if you're going to pay me for my drawing, then um, you have the rights to it. But my drawings are not extremely detailed unless they 100% confirm it. And like they're 100% going to be my client. I may give them a rough sketch. It may not be to scale. It may not. It just, it's my standard for me to understand the information and they get the understanding of what I'm making. There's no dimensions. Mm -hmm. There's no cut list. There's no nothing. It's just a blank slate. People put a ruler on it and they're like, I have no idea what scale he's using. It's my scale, the scale that I understand. It's my job. <laughs> it's Freddie's so, scale. Yeah, it's Freddie's scale. I, so all I, that's purposely done because I want the job and I don't want anyone taking my work and, and just flying through it and making their job easier. Yeah. I, I have a desire that uses a one twelve mm -hmm. scale. And it's just like, why do you use this? It's such a pain to work with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And it, it, I mean, it takes a scale ruler, but how often do you have a scale whirler in front of you? You just have a tape measure. Whereas if it's quarter inch or eighth inch scale, I can easily work yeah. with that. Right. And I try and tell her, she's just like, well, I don't, I don't have issues mm -hmm. with it. <laughs> so that's funny. Yeah. But do you ever charge a design fee up front? Yes. You do? I don't. Depending on the job I have. Yes. Not always. I, I, I think it comes back to like I was saying with Freddie, whereas if a person comes to me to design something that I know that that's all they're getting, then yes, I would charge them. But majority of the time, it, and it's I've learned it the hard way, is that I'm not really doing a full-on drawing anymore until I'm guaranteed to get the job. Yeah, I, I do it pretty so. much the same way you guys do it. You know, I ask for pictures. The pictures are are invaluable now, and there's so much information out there in the internet. They can always give you a couple, you know, pretty good pictures that, that give you an idea of what you're going for. And I pretty much work off of that. And I, I don't spend a lot of time doing a lot of designs, you know, a, a few sketches here and there, but um, you know, it's, it's just really easy to do it that way. And I always ask also, you know, what's, what's your budget for this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because if they tell you, you know, $300. It's like, I'm not even going to waste my time with them. Um, yeah, that's a, to me, that's probably one of the first questions I ask other than yeah. pictures is, you know, can you please send me some pictures? Here's my email address. And, and what budget are you looking at? Mm. Yeah. The, the other thing is, uh, I receive a lot of pictures where I'll look at the piece of furniture and I don't mind telling the customer after I see, it, I'm like, mm -hmm. More or less what I'll say is, just so you know, this is a piece of crap. I'm going to refine the hell out of this and make it look really nice. And then once I, they, they understand that and majority of them will come back and say, okay, I trust your judgment or something like that. And it's because a lot of stuff on the internet is mass produced and it's just, 
not that great mm-hmm. looking. So I'll refine it a little bit better and everything. Yeah. yeah. Another okay. good question. What's the next one, guy? Oh, we're, we're an hour into it already. Do we want to do another question? Yeah. Okay. Let me see if I can find it. You want to do the marketing one? There's two of them there. The one about uh, the last one, which was from finer detail. Mm-hmm. At some point, you talk about marketing your business. You know, you can do Or if you even do it at all. You probably can do a whole episode on that, but if you want a quick synopsis, I guess you can say we can do that. All right. Okay. So um, the next question we have is finerdetail.ca, so that'd be Canada. Uh, at some point, could you talk about marketing your business or even if you do any at all? Uh, you're, you're going to be very hungry when you first start. So the, the only way I know to get your name out there is to do shows. And that's how you start handing out your name. Always have a business card with you at all times and always don't hesitate to hand that card out, no matter just in conversation or anything. Always just push your business in a polite way. Let me say that. Don't be a salesman in a way that a car salesman, right? Mm-hmm. I'm saying it's car salesman. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just always always push what you're doing. Let people know. That's, that's the main thing. Talk about it. Um, and then doing shows. That is a great way to get exposure. Uh, you're, it's going to take you a couple of years. When I first started, I would talk to people that have been doing it for years, and they tell me that they don't do shows and stuff. And I was just like, "How do you? How do you not do shows? How do you get your word out?" And it, it's just you develop a name for yourself, and then after a couple of years, hopefully, you will be established enough that clients will just come to you. Um, mine is all word of mouth. All my work, I do no advertising anymore. I play around with Instagram. It doesn't do anything for me personally. It's just my way of sharing what I'm doing in the shop. It's just, yeah, locally, I it's a small enough town that more or less people know who I am or my name will come up in conversation when people start what, talking. What, what now, kind so. of shows are you talking about? Like a home show? Furniture shows you can do. Uh, craft festivals. Mm-hmm. There's several things to keep in mind. One of the best pieces of advice I ever heard from somebody was – if you go to a free craft festival, you're going to get everybody and their sister because they're going to show mm-hmm. up, right? Uh, if they have to pay to get into it, your clientele pricing, your clientele starts going up in quality. The more money they're willing to spend to get into a show, the more money they're willing to spend for quality pieces. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. Um, I have a local show that I would do around me that it cost me $350. I think it costs $10 to get into the show. But I was always guaranteed one client a year through that show. And I did it for three or four years to the point that I then became so busy, I didn't need to go to that show mm-hmm. anymore. So, And it was always a very profitable. That was a very good spend money to get in the show ratio to getting work out of that. It was excellent, that show for that. Whereas there's shows in Philly where it will cost you a couple grand to get into it. Hopefully, you'd get one sale out of it. And my my rule of thumb is always do a show where there really is no competition. So this local show I would do, there was only one or two other furniture makers. So we stood out, all of us, compared to people selling jewelry and baskets and whatever yeah. else, right? Whereas if I've done shows where it was all, all furniture makers. That is very hard to sell yourself because the guy right next door to you is doing basically the same thing you're doing. It might be his own twist or anything, but there's nothing saying he can't do what you're doing. So it's hard to sell yourself that way. Whereas at a craft fair, I've noticed that you'll stand out a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much the same way. I've never done any shows or anything like that, but it's it's pretty much word of mouth. And then, you know, always be, I don't want to say always be selling, but, you know, always being promoting your, your business that just about everybody you meet. It's a pretty standard, you know, thing when you meet a new person. What do you do for a living? So uh, mm-hmm. right now is a good time because a lot of, I've been going to you know, a couple of Christmas parties here and there. So <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's been helpful, but uh, word of mouth and, you know, asking, there's nothing wrong with asking your customer when you deliver a piece, you know, Hey, if you need anything else or you know, anybody that is looking for something, uh, you know, please tell them about me. Um, ask for referrals. Yeah. Building the furniture is the easy side of it, right? You're never selling a piece of furniture. You're selling yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's really how you get to be uh, busy in this field, I personally feel, especially if you're doing it by word of mouth. It's, it's all you, – you have to sell yourself before you sell the piece of furniture. That's what's going to keep the conversation going. So at, at first I would say that, you know, craft fairs or shows are, are really good. And for me, I come at it from a different angle because these cheap craft fairs are also very beneficial to me because I do a lot of restoration. They see me yes. restoring something, offering my services. They remember that attic chair. They remember that piece that their grandparents or family members had. And then they say, Ooh, I have a piece that needs to be restored. So it's great advertisement for that for me. So for me, it's good bang for the buck and not a huge investment. Like you said, Justin, furniture shows, if there's going to be a lot of furniture makers in there, I'm not interested. It's just kind of like yeah. too, it, much competition. too much competition. Yeah. And some people, I have a perfect example is I know two makers. One is a very well-established company that does high-end furniture and reproductions. They want $50,000 for a piece. The guy halfway down the aisle does almost exactly the same piece he wants twenty thousand dollars for the same piece you would think the, cl- right. the person looking at that piece would be like oh i just got a deal in actuality what they're saying is there's something wrong with your twenty thousand dollar piece if this guy up this hallway is selling it for fifty thousand i'm going back to that guy so, yeah that's what we talked about one. once too which was positioning yourself in the market the market yes to be that that guy selling the fifty thousand dollar piece so there is that concern. But I, what I also do is say, you know, the wealthy areas here in Boston, if I'm already visiting a client, I see a wealthy house. I throw my brochure in there. I throw my little card saying, you know, 10% off your first service. Throw my name out there. I have the the magnets on the van that I put on and off. I want people to know that I exist. But when I park in a, in an area that I'm not very comfortable with, I like to take off my magnets off the van. When I'm in a rush and I do tailgate, I like to take the magnets off my van. Um, so there's that concern. I also have the t-shirt or the sweater or the hat saying the, the brand, my information, I post my business card everywhere. It's now like, you know, when you have stickers, like the other day I'm, I'm in, you know, a place that offers woodworking stuff. I'm posting, you know, the ATG podcast stickers on their walls and everything else. So they know that there's something there and someone may catch their eye at it. So there's like, Oh, there's something else that someone services or something worth listening to. So those are all benefits for you and you always need to talk you always need to have a great website you need to go ahead and upsell story you almost have you constantly need to sell yourself you need to be like you know like a car salesman but not creepy and like just tell the world why you're different what makes you special and people often swallow that up the issue is that everyone's getting a website it's becoming easier to establish a story so you need to find something that sticks you out from the crowd 
and that will benefit you. Uh, yeah. And I, I think, I think you're in a little different situation in the sense that you, you do restoration furniture. So you have to keep having reminders out there for mm-hmm. people. Whereas I'm doing 20 some pieces a year. So it's like, I can go months without hearing from anybody. Whereas you're just turning over so fast. You need people knowing that, Hey, this is, I'm the guy that does this around here. Take yeah. You know, the other thing about the way, I, the way I look at it in restoration is that even if I'm just repairing the furniture, I also inform them that I can also make something for them. So hopefully that they will remember me by. That's why I emphasize maker and restore. Even though I restore mainly and do very little making, they see that maker is first and they understand that I have the capability. So it helps me get my foot in the door with maybe something small and hopefully there's a potential for something bigger down the road. It goes back to the whole idea of just selling yourself, continue constantly, constantly selling yourself. So shout it from the rooftops. That's it. Yes. Just not in a creepy way. way. Exactly. (laughs) I also think you gotta be very cautious of expressing yourself. You know, don't, don't be too cocky. Yes. Yes. Very, very much agree with that. God, we had a couple of patrons ask us these questions. Do you want to talk about our patrons? Yeah. Um, yeah, we have a, a new patron this week. His name is Reese Yance. Thank you very much, Reese. And as always, we've got Llama. I really would like to know what Llama's na- name is. So if you're hearing this, Llama, please email us and tell us your name so I don't have to keep referring to you as Llama. Are you the Dalai Lama? Um, we have Adam, Adam Gadette, Michael Brindle, Tom Harvey, James Shadbolt, Sean Raymakers, Mike Holtzhauer, Keith Johnson, Sean Walker, John Ross, and Michael Hill. Thank you so much, guys. And uh, we really appreciate your support. And uh, if you're listening out there and you like what you've heard and what you've heard in the past, please go to our Patreon page and and sign up. We do have different reward levels, anything from a sticker to a T-shirt. Speaking of T-shirts, we'll get to that in a second, I guess. Um, But thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Freddie, what's going on with the t-shirts? <laughs> They've been ordered. Oh, that's <laughs> They've been ordered and we got them in Navy. So they're coming. I gave him the credit card. So um, We had more than 50 on the list, so I adjusted a little on on numbers. But everyone, every size has been. Okay. Um, that was on the list was purchased. Okay. You got the onesie ones too, right? For I your do. kids? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Good. All right. Um, we're going to wrap this up here yeah, or what? I think so. All right. First thing I will say is, everyone, I hope you guys had a great Christmas because this will be dropped next week after Christmas. Freddie, where can they find you at? The easiest and the quickest is visiting the website. It's the periodcraftsman.com. It's periodcraftsman.com. Crafts with an S and men with an E. Okay. Guy. Where can they find us at? They can find all of us at theatgpodcast.com. You can find me at guyswoodshop.com. And you can find me on Instagram, uh, Justin underscore DePama, or my website, which is craftedheirlooms.com. Shoot all of us an email if you'd like at theatgpodcast at gmail.com. Or look us up on Instagram at the ATG podcast. And with that, we're done. Mm-hmm.
like I said, I hope everybody has a great holiday and we will talk to you after the holidays. See you. And happy New Year's. Happy Thanks. New Year's. See you. That's a wrap.